Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Thank you again, as always. I know I'm a broken record, but all of you, so supportive. You can't even imagine the emails and texts and FedExes and everything that I've received. I'm just beyond grateful and thankful, and I'm glad that we're doing something that people from all over the world feel strongly about and are enjoying and getting something out of. So thank you so much for subscribing, turning it on to your friends and family and listening. Sitting across from Pat O'Brien, I can only think of one thing. I think of how you come from relative obscurity and poverty with nothing going on in an area of this country farthest away from all media and anything possible in the entertainment business. But you have a dollar and a dream and a thought of what you want to do, and you get to that place. And not only do you get to that place, but you get to that place with a vision, you get to that place with hard work, you get to that place with incredible, incredible talent and relationships. And to take it one step further, you get to the point where you make one mistake. You get to the point where you do one thing that affects something. Out of all the things you've done in your life that are right, out of all the broadcasts you do, that are phenomenal out of all the situations you've been in professionally one random thing takes you down 
tied to something that you're going through that you know you have to change. And it not only has a chance to undo you, it not only has a chance to take your entire career down, but it doesn't. Because the other thing about Pat O'Brien is the fact that even though he suffered a setback later on in his career, he came back with a vengeance and through relationships and people who believed in him and cared about him as evidenced in his book, which you have to read, which is incredible, entitled, I'll Be Back Right After This. He lets you know what it's like to take the hit and to come back strong and take control of your life again and be as great as you always were. And let me tell you something. If you can figure out a way to be in a position where you are anywhere in the world, where it seems like you're out in the middle of nowhere and there's no hope in sight and no evidence that there's anything in the line of work that you want to do in your area, believe me, you can figure it out. You can make it happen, just like Pat did. And if you follow all the things that he did, which led him to the first job in his career at the Huntley Brinkley Report, which was a dream that he had when he was a little kid, I can guarantee you that through all of those things, along with all the great relationships you make along the way, that you'll have the opportunity in your profession of having the kind of Hall of Fame career that he's having in his. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning nose into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now? Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I really want to get started because this is a really, really great, great guest and a great episode to come. I feel it. So without further ado, let's get started with the introduction and let's pray he'll still be sitting here when I get done. Patrick John Pat O'Brien is an American author, radio host, and sportscaster who worked at CBS from 1981 to 97, as well as the anchor and host of Access Hollywood from 97 to 2004, and The Insider from 2004 to 2008. After graduating from college in 1970, he worked as a researcher at NBC News in Washington, D.C., and was a production assistant for the respected Huntley-Brinkley Report. He then served as an anchor and reporter in Chicago, and in 1977, he moved to KNXT-TV, now known as KCBS-TV in Los Angeles, where he earned four local Emmy Awards for his amazing work. He then went on to work for CBS Sports, where he covered the World Series, Super Bowl, NBA Finals, and Final Four, 
on multiple occasions, as well as covering six Olympic Games. He wrote the book Talking Sports, A BSer's Guide, and then subsequently just released a really fantastic autobiography entitled I'll Be Back Right After This. Please welcome my guest today, Pat O'Brien. Hey, Barry. How you doing? <laughs> Will you explain to our audience, because I'm always fascinated by how you do it. Does your producer or I don't know what you call a production assistant, do they type everything in the teleprompter phonetically? So in other words, let's say he says his name is Ivan. It's written E-Y-E and then hyphen V-A-N. There's no teleprompter for me at the Olympics. There's no teleprompter at any sporting event. That I do. How can you do this? How can you do, okay, in lane one is Sergei Slivasvile, and lane two is Tom Jones, and lane three is blah, blah, blah. You know that because you have it in front of you. Now the race starts. I'm not talking about the race. I'm talking about before the race when you're setting everything up and somebody writes the copy for you. They don't write the copy for you? Don't need it. What percentage of the broadcasters use teleprompter to set up? Some do. And if it's a real long setup, I'll use it. But I, I don't rely on the teleprompter. Let's say there's a swim meet and there's 10 swimmers and you got to set them all up in lane one and you can't look down at the thing and you gotta, you're got to looking at Yeah, I can because they're showing the swimmer as I'm talking about them. How do you know when they're showing the swimmer and when they're showing you? This is the Olympics. I have 10 monitors. So I'm not going to script out... What's your process that how you do that? I know our audience would love to know that because we don't have a lot of people who are broadcasters. Okay. Hi, everybody. I'm Pat O'Brien. Welcome to day two of the Olympics. And today is swimming. And uh, Michael Phelps will be swimming today. And we're going to see how he does against a big lineup. So in lane one, then I look at my piece of paper. Is Sergei Mascalato. In uh, lane two is Mario... Batali, the great overweight uh, Italian swimmer. And they're showing them. They're not showing me, so I read off the paper. How do you do the research to know how the pronunciation is of six of the ten swimmers? Who's telling you? Who's helping you with that before you start the broadcast? The swimmer. I go up to everybody I cover and I say, how do you say your name? And they'll say... Ivan Lindell. <laughs> now they'll say Sergei Slivasvile. Look, I've done eight of them. Come on. If it's unpronounceable, and most of them are, I will f seek out their manager or the athlete himself. You know, I'll see them the day before. But it's not the biggest thing on my mind. You know the famous Jack Buck call where I was he there. blew the call. What's the closest that's ever happened to you, and how did you handle it? You know, if you make a mistake, correct it. Simple as that. Um, and that's what Jack did that day. Uh, I miss him. Um, Larry Bird, when he came into the uh, NBA, remember he had broken his leg. He was, was not able to play. Um, we were dying to get him on TV, get this guy on television. So finally, um, we get him. He's going to play. He's been cleared to play. This is after all the hype, after the Georgetown jumper, everything. We were so anxious. So I decided to start the, uh, the broadcast standing next to Michael Jordan, uh, very dramatically, and CBSI comes up and then it just fades right to us. And I very professionally say, 
Michael Jordan, welcome to the NBA. And uh, he says, thank you, Pat. And I said, but let me ask you this, because now I'm trying to be a little tough on him, right? And we're friends. I said, can one man beat the Lakers? He said, well, I don't know. We're playing the Boston Celtics today. <laughs> <laughs> it was live on television. What was your next line? Uh, it's on the internet. I mean, I don't even blink. So I say, all right, so let's talk about this day and blah, blah, blah. I don't apologize. I don't blink. And at the end, I say, well, you don't have to tell me you're playing the Boston Celtics. It's a big lineup. I'm welcome. You know, it's on the internet. You, you see, I do not even flinch. And in my ear, they're saying, you fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> but mistakes are made. You just got to know how to come. You know, the, the best way to do it is to, if you make a mistake, keep talking until the listener makes the mistake. Certain comedians and musical artists, you'll ask them about an artist's performance and they'll say, well, we never get to perform with each other and they never get the headline right. with each other. And a lot of times you work with greats, but there's a lot of greats that you never get to work with. As you were doing all these Olympics and as you were doing all these great, great events that you did, was there ever a broadcaster who you actually went home, even though you knew you were at the top of your game, you said, that guy's just as good as I am, if not better, and he doesn't get a shot? Yeah, no, you can't judge yourself against the field. Uh, but, you know, for, for what I did, that's a specialty. Um, about five guys have really had it down. Me, Costas, uh, Brian Gumbel, Lampley. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's not for kids sitting in a sports studio doing scores because they'll hand you a note that says 2513. That's the note. Then you have to figure out, and you don't know what, I don't know what teams they are. And what you do, you look at a camera and over your shoulder are the teams. So what did I say, 2513? So 2513 and North Carolina wins, uh, North Carolina leading uh, Duke. And he's got to figure it out. You're live in front of millions of people. It's not for it's not for pussies. <laughs> you know, the first time I did it, uh, I panicked, and my producer said the very first time Brent Musburger was fired, I was hired the next day to be Brent Musburger. It was a sports studio, it was a boxing match, and scores, and so I'm trying to do it all, all, and I'm trying to do it like Brent. Brent was the best, by the way. And I'm yapping away, and my producer in my ear says, go to commercial immediately. <laughs> so I went to commercial. He took me out in the hallway, and he said, you can only do one thing at a time. You're thinking about the next 35 scores. Just do them one at a time. He said, believe me, get into that mindset. And uh, he was right. You know, I was thinking I had like 50 scores or 35 or 40. And I was thinking, what if what, when I get down to that one am I going to say? But uh, take them one at a time, it's easy. So you said Brent Musburger was the best. Are you saying he's one of the best or he is the best? Uh, in my generation, he was the best. I mean, he, uh, I, I did the NFL today with him. He could take, uh, you would be, if you're puzzled at how I operate, uh, he didn't have any paper in front of him for nothing. And he could do anything and just keep talking and the guy was a wonder to watch yep. you are looking live that's the last thing uh he said that had been scripted before him 
So I know you say you don't compare yourself to the competition, but I always look at certain people in certain broadcasts and I always think, why doesn't that guy or girl get more of a chance? I'll give you an example. Pam Oliver. She never made a mistake. She always did a great job, yet she never gets the shot to move up. But have you ever looked at other broadcasters and said, God, why don't they give that person a chance? No, I mean, it's not set up that way. Uh, If you're good and if you're better than other people, if you can handle a live event, which is different. Um, And Pam had her chance. She has her chance. She's sideline reporter. That's a big job. Not as big as the Olympics. That's a different job. Um, The Olympics, uh, it's 17 days of hell. Um, And you have to have the mentality. I'm not saying Pam doesn't, but you have to have the mentality to... uh, to get through all the highs and lows, it's you know it's one of the most remarkable sporting events ever. Because and you got to keep track of thirty sports and seventy six uh, venues. Uh, but no, I, you know people earn their way to the top. I don't think I don't think I know anybody who didn't earn their way to the top. Joe Buck is twenty five. He got his first job. Jealousy's a bitch. Remember, uh, Joe is great. He was great then and great now. Now one of the things about Joe, I want to preface this and say that I enjoy him as much as you do and I think he's as great as you do there's certain things that I don't understand and I was hoping you could help sure. me with this and maybe this is something you've heard about many times maybe it's not but being a Patriots fan watching that first Super Bowl against the Giants that they lost and watching David Tyree catch that ball against his, his head yeah. and listening to Joe Buck call the play which was one of the greatest plays in history calling it like he's actually walking in the park why in certain plays does somebody just call it like it's just like we're talking right now his call is great but he but um those things happen you miss things if you look down because you don't want to be you're 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 working for everybody not just patriots fans of which i am one too uh, so what about the, what about New York City? You gonna be more excited for something the Patriots did? So that great call of Kirk Gibson, I can't believe what I just saw. That's a bad call for Oakland. It's Dennis. Did Echo. you pass anything in uh, in um, <laughs> common sense? It's a different guy. They, different people call different games. Like when Kirby Puckett hit the home run, uh, Jack Buck's call was. It was game six, and he said, we'll see you tomorrow night, which is a great call. Then they throw it back to me to wrap up the game, and all I said was, we'll see you tomorrow night. And that, to me, was one of my better calls. Just copy Jack and get off the air. I interviewed Royce Clayton, and he said throughout growing up as a kid, his motto was probably one that you've heard many times, study greatness imitate greatness become great so i guess that would go hand in hand with what you said it's a good model i would take that one but you know what you're missing here is that sports is the cumulative you know you don't just walk into a sporting event and do it you got to keep track of the of the games otherwise you won't be able to walk into a game and just pick it up you can't study sports and then be a sportscaster
When I was a swimmer, one of the things that was fascinating is I would work really, really hard and practice. People would be passing me left and right, but I would work hard. And in the race, I would win. But there was also a kid on my team who just flopped around in the pool every day. And he was another stroke. He was a breaststroker. I was a freestyler. And he would win every race. No preparation, right. nothing. Are there sportscasters and broadcasters that you've worked with who you're like, this guy didn't even do any research and he's amazing and I'm killing myself here. I, I never kill myself. I do my research. Brent's one of those guys. I'm one of those guys. Um, I remember the first time uh, Pat Hayden was my partner. When we went on the air and I did my whole thing. And when I got done, there was all these scores and highlights and stuff and there was no notes. And, and Pat turns to me and says, I'd rather be hit by the front four of the Vikings <laughs> than do your job. Because <laughs> it's a skill. One time, um, I tried to pick out who I would, who I could do this without. In other words, I'm the top guy of the broadcast, so we think. The top guy of the broadcast is the producer and the director. But they pick, everybody fits in. I looked around, I tried to figure out who could we not do this with? And I couldn't find anybody because everybody, including the runner, um, you know, how am I going to get my drink? When I'm all mic'd up, how am I going to get a glass of water? You know, So it all fits. It all works. They know what they're doing. My greatest memories in broadcasting, when it wasn't a great moment, it wasn't about the game. I couldn't even tell you the players or the teams, but it was a basketball game in which I witnessed Rick Barry and Bill Russell calling a game and Rick Barry saying to Bill Russell, why do you have that watermelon, watermelon smile, smile yeah. on? And then Bill Russell stopped talking the whole broadcast. Right. Has there ever been a situation in your career where you said something unknowingly, not purposefully, but you knew that you insulted the person you were with and you could tell from that point on they were holding a grudge for the rest of the telecast? No. You know why? Because I watched that broadcast and that reminds us not to say stuff. I wouldn't have said that anyway. It's pretty racist. You know, you got to learn. First of all, you can talk to me for eight hours and not find a negative thing that I've done that's so bad that was fireable, you know. But um, uh, I had uh, James Brown, the basketball player from Harvard, right. and he's on football now. So we're doing the highlights, and now I'll explain it to you. The highlights are on a monitor. And it's, uh, let's say it's West Virginia and somebody. So I turned to James and I said, uh, well, you know, Jerry West went to uh, Virginia. And we kept going. And then I realized he went to West Virginia. <clears throat> so I said to James, making it sound like his fault, James, you know he went to West Virginia, right? <laughs> <laughs> I said, we'll be back in a minute. We got the commercial, he goes, you prick. <laughs> <laughs> Did anybody conversely ever say anything in a broadcast that offended you and you had to still go through the whole broadcast? Don't forget, I mean, there's millions of dollars riding on these games. I mean, they pick their announcers and their hosts. They're not, they, don't, they don't do that. And I've worked with Bill Russell, no problem. Uh, and they also know that I can snap back you know, if they snap back at me. But there's such a thing as a good uh, repertoire, good, a good argument is good. But uh, I never had that problem. 
Do you like it better when you have somebody who goes toe to toe with you on a topic and you disagree on something or do you like it better when you're in agreement for a broadcast? I'd rather argue if we have to. Anything to clear it up, you know? Um, but they, again, once again, these are big operations and millions of dollars are put into it. They're not going to say, well, let's put, let's put Pat with that guy that doesn't like him. You know, they're not going to do that. <laughs> they're going to have chemistry on the air. And, uh, you know, my, my idea was to give people the sports, certainly, but also have a little fun along the way. Was there a sport throughout your career that you looked forward to and one that you were like, God, I, I know I'm taking this gig but I don't really like calling this sport. Right, that's not the way it works. Uh, they would know that. So I love basketball, I love the Final Four, I love the uh, Selection Sunday, I love the, uh, I, I did. I hosted two World Series, so I loved baseball then. And um, no, that's not how it works. That stuff never happens. You got millions of dollars in a game. When you're doing the Olympics, per se, and there's 17 different sports or 30 different sports, Clearly, if we were to put a truth serum in your veins and I said, what's your first favorite? What's your 30th favorite? You would be able to tell me. Well, my favorite is swimming. I love swimming. Um, track and field. You know, after it's cut down. Uh, I actually like figure skating. I think it's a great sport. So, but I would never not cover it because I didn't like it. When you get to do something like the World Series, it's you were doing the World Series, in my opinion, mm -hmm. at a time when there was this shift where football was starting to pass baseball like yep. a rocket ship. But it it was like it was it was happening almost as you were there doing those World Series. Did you notice that that was happening since you were doing both sports, or did you not notice? I didn't notice it, and I, I wouldn't have thought of it. Um... I'm not going to think, well, let's see. America's done with the pastime, baseball. And I'm going to tell them I only want to do football because it looks like it's doing better. Now it's the other way around. It's coming back. Football football is kind of dying now. Does it surprise you how boxing has died and how the UFC has... It has not. The um, UFC. I remember there was a big, huge matchup... Um, and I don't follow the UFC, but two of the biggest names ever, and they were, they were going to fight for the first time in the cage. So Charlie Sheen had a party and went over. We had everything there. I don't drink, but he had drinks for everybody and food and catering and uh, this big party atmosphere. And finally the sport came on. We turned it on. It was over in 40 seconds. <laughs> Charlie goes, now what do we do? You know. Uh, but I don't know that sport, and I can't talk about it. But I know it's exciting for a lot of people to watch. If I had to do it, I'd do it. In your career, you've seen two sports be eclipsed, big sports, by other sports, football eclipsing baseball and UFC eclipsing boxing. Yeah, well, the problem with American boxing, and you're right, the problem with American boxing is there are no stars anymore. When I did boxing, there was Ali. I did his last fight with Trevor Burbick in the Bahamas. And um, I couldn't get rid of him. <laughs> he and I had been friends for a long time. And he called me, there were no cell phones then, but he called the truck and he said, can you tell Pat to come down to my cabin? I said, sure. 
So I go in, there's like a thousand people outside his door and he lets me in. And once I get in there, he won't let me go. I mean, he's, and I figured out he's nervous. And I figured out, my God, the guy is nervous. He just can't stop talking. And then he lost the fight. I sat there for five hours with Muhammad Ali. <laughs> Anybody else would pay for that, you know? But I had to watch all those stupid magic tricks like 50 times. And then I realized the poor guy was nervous. And so I stuck with him. Out of all the athletes you've met in your entire career, who would you choose as the number one person, dead or alive, that you would want to sit with again for five hours? Well, I don't want to sit with anybody for five hours. Um, <laughs> to be honest with well, you, well, that's too bad because we got four hours left here. Uh, <laughs> a, good, a good date, maybe. No, I would pick Magic Johnson. Ali was great. Uh, in the beginning, he was, you know, when he could talk before the Parkinson's set in. Uh, he was always fun to be around. But uh, there was nobody like Magic Johnson. Magic has a smile. He's got the personality. Uh, you you can count on him for anything. He's great. I got to spend just only a couple hours with him. And I said, what is the key to all your success professionally and personally? And he said, that's easy, Barry. It's just two words. I said, it's only two words. He said, yes, over deliver. That's it. That's him. I mean, he, um, I covered him from day one. Um, Remember the All-Star game one time, overconfidence too. I mean, this guy has more confidence than anybody. He, I remember at the All-Star game in Houston, uh, score was tied. The ball is at this end of the court. The basket he needs to hit is at the other end of the court. Uh, he gets the ball out of bounds. There's a second left, and he heaves it towards uh, for a winning basket. Score's tied. And both circles around the rim and falls out. And he gets down on the floor and he starts pounding the floor. And I said, I, was, I had to be standing there. And I said, you didn't expect that to go in, did you? He said, Irish, called me Irish. I said, Irish, I expect them all to go in. And all the greats have that. You know, Michael Jordan uh, has probably missed more game-ending shots than anybody when it didn't count. Um, I said, what do you do when, when you miss a shot like that, an important shot? He said, by the time the shot misses, I'm going the other way and I've already forgotten about that. And in my back pocket, I have a shot that I made that won something. So they all cling on to a memory that, um, you know, made them part of their, their legend. You're doing all these things live like athletes are. You're calling the athletes. Mm -hmm. Yet you're calling games, baseball, seven out of ten failures at the plate. Right. Quarterback. In other words, nobody hits Forty percent yeah. miss passes. So many misplays. Soccer. I mean, how many conversions are there? Right. But yet in your profession, the way you're talking to me, there are literally one percent of one percent of one percent of your broadcasts feature a mistake in them. It's like you're a brain surgeon, yet you're calling sports where there's so much failure. Because we have people in our ears say, you just said something wrong, and you correct it. Uh, but baseball players, they'd be, you know, they'd, they'd give their salaries to bat 300. 
and football. Do you want to watch? Do you want everybody to catch a football? No. So um, that's why it's sports. That's why it's good sports. Now I can't wait for the, this football season to go back and uh, our quarterback see if he can do it again. Do you think he can? Yes. You've been around all kinds of personalities. Right. And I remember watching the Super Bowl last year, and he threw that interception before the half, Tom Brady. It's 28 to 3. There's only a few seconds left in the half, and I'll never forget the shot. And again, it's live. And he's sitting there on the bench, and he's got a Gatorade in between his legs. It appears like he has lost the will to live. They let his team down. No one wants to let their team down. It appears like he is defeated, like he doesn't believe he has a chance. His body language right. shows that. If you see an athlete that doesn't do that, he's not a superstar. You know, the superstars are, are mean to themselves, you know, on the air, or on the air, uh, during the game. If they miss something like Magic Johnson, pounding the floor after missing a 50-foot shot. <laughs> so I expect them all to go in. That's just the way they are. Is this how people watch sports? Do you just like pick apart everything? I have the kind of mind where I'm always looking at different things and trying to understand how a person with that body language 12 minutes later comes back and scores. He took a pause. He took some deep breaths, thought about it, went over the play in his head. Figured out what he did wrong with the locker room. Said, what happened there? And the guy said, well, I, I took the wrong step to the right or the left or whatever it was. Uh, and then he corrects it. They go back out. That's why they get paid millions of dollars. Another thing I want to share with you, the last Super Bowl, because you weren't calling that one. I'm watching the broadcast, and Atlanta's ahead. And they're passing the ball, and they're not running out the clock, and they're not using the whole clock. And I'm thinking, why isn't the announcer saying anything? Why aren't they saying anything that there's a hundred experts on the red side of the field that know football, have trained in football since they were in high school, and Pop Warner, and they're ahead 28 to three, and they're throwing the football and not using every second of the clock, knowing that Tom Brady is a master at every second of the clock, but not one announcer is saying anything. Uh, what, what they do is they're calling the game, not the mistakes, or not what they think the game ought to be. It's very important for an announcer, especially in a football game, um, to not criticize, not say, oh, they ought to be doing that. Now, if you want that, uh, go on um, TuneIn, TuneIn Radio, and you can listen to the home team announcers. And that's where you get all that right, all that stuff. Network guys, you know, we're oftentimes vanilla ice cream just just call the game first down second down because it's television people have eyes they can see so your philosophy was never to go off book and say uh, let's say i'm working with uh pick a name anybody brent musburger let's say um well brent would actually say that but you, you don't you're not there to tell people how the game should be played you try to let you're taught to let the audience enjoy the game. Now, if you watch some of these games that have no announcers, they're actually enjoyable. I think the best football announcer now is Joe Buck. I think he's really good. And here's why people like Joe Buck and some people don't um, is that he puts as much pop culture 
into the broadcast. Don't forget, the audience is millennial now. It's all new people, you know? So, um, you know, Joe is funny. He's, he's pop culture, right on the money, and he knows the game. And he's a pretty good teacher. Yes, he did. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Hey everybody, I am really, really excited. We have a new sponsor, AquaTrue. This is the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. I know it sounds complicated, but let's put it this way. This is something that can take your tap water and can turn it into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You're going to be enjoying the best water, the safest water. And if you haven't read all the news about Flint, Michigan, in every single state, there's over 100 chemicals found in tap water that are not even regulated by the EPA. Many of them are cancer-causing and have lead in them. So you can go to a special website that we've set up called industrystandardwater.com. It takes you directly to the AquaTrue site. And if you get this product, you're going to get $100 off. Just type in 100 in the special code section. You'll get that money off and you'll start saving. You can put a whole huge bottle of Diet Coke in this machine. And 10 minutes later, it'll come out with the best tasting water you've ever had. I got one of these products. It was unbelievable. Industrystandardwater.com. And you'll be enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever tasted. I want to go way, way back. I want to go back to where you were born, where you grew up, what was the socioeconomic dynamic there? What was your first inspiration of getting into the broadcasting world? I grew up in South Dakota. We were Abe Lincoln poor. I grew up, uh, old story, right next to the tracks. Uh, my father was a meatpacker. My mother worked at Montgomery Wards. We moved about every six months to find a cheaper house. Um, and But they were great parents and I had everything I thought I needed. Our, our house was so ugly. <laughs> our neighborhood was so ugly that when the circus came to town, Barnum Bailey, yeah, that was it. 
they would put all their animals, their whole staff, they'd use our yard to get ready for the circus parade. Because they thought, oh, they don't give a shit there. Look at their house. <laughs> so I grew up watching these little people walk around my front yard with cigars and bottles of Jack Daniels. <laughs> Actually, I want to be like that kid. Um, but no, so I grew up in South Dakota. We moved a lot. What was the average rent that your parents paid? $25. $25 a month for the house. Yeah. That's the times. I mean, uh, they weren't all mansions, but uh, to me, they were... I'll show you one that was went for twenty five. Um, so anyway, I, I grew up like that, uh, but I had everything I needed. I went to public schools, got a great education, uh, had good friends. I was a kid, you know. Uh, I was not athletic until I got to high school. Um, a lot of girlfriends. I, I, I had like a really normal childhood, but I didn't have the right watch or the right pair of shoes or you know like now I would not have any Nike shoes that sort of thing and so what was your first inspiration in getting into broadcasting did your family have a television or no television we had a television and it was a big event to get a TV back then in the 50s and we turned it on and you know how long it takes for a TV to go on back then. Maybe you don't. Back then there were no transistors or anything like that. It, it, the tubes had to warm up. Uh, it, it took maybe 15 minutes to get a full screen. And the first person I saw on TV was David Brinkley. So David always was an inspiration to me. And the first job I had was working for David Brinkley. How old were you when you first saw David Brinkley on television? And okay, how were, old were you when you got the first job with him? What was the gap in time from when you first saw him? Okay. David Brinkley was one of the greatest news anchormen, Huntley Brinkley. So it was Cronkite and Brinkley and Huntley. Those are the three. And um, it was a news program. And um, like the news, you know, good evening. This is a, so I saw, we got our first TV in I think 50... I'm going to say 55 or 56. And I, I got my first job in broadcasting because Tom Brokaw was from South Dakota. And he hooked me up with MB. I was going to graduate school studying international economics and diplomacy at Johns Hopkins. And so he got me a job as a copy boy, or the level entry job at NBC in Washington. And my first day there, I'm sitting there. And the guy taps me on the shoulder and he says, who are you? I said, I just got hired. I'm, and I looked up, it was David Brinkley. He said, well, chat's in town. We don't have a secretary. Can you come back and help us answer phones? So, of course, I left my job, went back, sat down in David's office, and we got along right away. And he hired me that day. How old were you then? I had to be. See, I was going to graduate school, so I had to be 19, 18. Pat, that's amazing. Incredible, huh? How things work like that. You must have thought when that happened that... I don't think I've ever uh, snuck out of the office and called my mom faster than that. You're not going to believe who I'm working for. You know? But that was David's only research, and we traveled all over the world together. We got to be very good friends. So he would take you all over the world? We traveled all over the world, yeah. Incredible. What's one of your greatest memories from working on that show? 
Uh, they're actually doing it now with Trump. Uh, after Nixon was beat McGovern in 72, um, David and I sat across the country like two pilgrims uh, to see what the mood of the country was. McGovern lost by a landslide, won one state. And so David and I went to town to town, went to about eight or nine cities and talked about how the country was adjusting to another Nixon administration. That was one of my favorites. And then we did the inaugurations together and the parades and all that stuff. So you're working with somebody who you looked up to when you watched him. He's as young. still my standard. You know, I believe that the, the, the best thing you can learn how to do is write. And um, and David told me that, but I was I was already already a pretty good writer, but it, you can't be in broadcasting or radio without knowing how to write, complete a sentence. And so you must have thought your first gig is working with the guy who you looked up to the most. Yeah, where am I going from here? <laughs> Were you thinking that? No, I knew that could be helpful. I mean, <clears throat> David told me uh, after three years, he said, "You got to go." This is too long for you to be in this job. So we'll find another job. So I called the president of NBC, and there was a, a summer relief writing job in Chicago. And David said, take it. Best thing ever happened to you. So I went to Chicago. I wrote at WMAQ. And then I went on the air, and then I anchored the news there. And then from then, just went one, you know, one thing after another. It's funny how I got to LA. I, I, I was walking home from the merchandise mart where MAQ was. It was so cold that I said to myself, I, I gotta get out of this city. So I went home, I said to my then wife, uh, we gotta go. You never wanna refer to a woman as my then wife. You know things aren't good when that happens. But We're fine, we talk every day, we still love each other, we're raising a kid. That's a huge success story. Uh, so yeah, so I said, we gotta get out of here, so I called the um, general manager at KNXT here, just now KCBS. I don't know how I got him on the line. I was pretty well known as Chicago's Geraldo, you know, guy who did those kind of stories that Geraldo did in New York. So the guy picked up the phone and I said, I'd like to come work there. He goes, um, well, we don't have any openings. And I said, when do you think you will have? He said, you know, uh, can you send me a tape? And I said, no. I don't, I don't have a tape. He said, why would you apply for a job and not have a tape? I said, because everything I do is good. You can take my last story. You can pick, pick any day of the week and take the story. And that's my tape. His next words were, when can you be here? <laughs> um, and later told me I'd never heard that kind of hotspot on the phone. And I lived up to it, but I knew I was telling the truth. You don't do things for a resume. But how do you go from being an executive assistant to David Brinkley to being the Geraldo of Chicago. How does that transition happen? How do you go from behind the scenes to on camera? Right. Uh, so I go to Chicago, I'm writing the news, it's summer, and I'm a good writer, so that was noticed. You know, if you're good at something, it gets noticed. And then, um, then I was a producer, then I was an assignment editor. I did like literally every job in broadcasting in Chicago. And they kept saying, you should be on the air, you should be on the air. I said, no, I don't think I'm ready yet. And then I went on the air and I loved it. And 
before I, and I, I, I will say, Geraldo, if you're listening, I, I did copy Geraldo. Had the long hair and the mustache, and I, I did stories about drugs and gangs. Um, and then I started winning all these Emmys and Emmys. You and won four of them there, didn't you? Four there, yeah. And then I went on the air, and I was good at it for a newcomer. So the guy in L.A. hires you from that thing you said, which is a great thing. I said, I don't have a tape. <laughs> so you get to L.A., and then when's your first big national break after coming to L.A. to the local station? I covered all the you know airplane crashes and and uh, in fact uh, when Delta was crashing, I believe it was Delta. It was Don't you not. think that's odd? Somebody says, "Hey, a plane crash. Let's go to Pat. Pat's the go-to airplane crash no. guy." If a plane crashed and it was a passenger plane, I was already gone. They said, "Where's Pat?" I, and I'd call him back. and said, "I'm halfway to the story." So uh, the general manager of KNXT became president of CBS Sports. So he called me and said, you want to come work for sports? What was his name? Van Gordon Sauter. And I said, I don't really know that much about it. Because you know, I grew up in South Dakota. The only sporting event that I ever saw on a regular basis were the Harlem Globetrotters, who came in town once, once a year. And he said, well, you're a good reporter, you'll learn. So it took months for me to make my decision. So I finally said, yes, I'll come. So I started doing things like the Iditarod and the race across Alaska, sled dog race. Uh, and it was freaking cold, I'll tell you. But, you know, slowly learned my craft. And uh, as I learned, I got better. And as I got better, the executives noticed. And here we are. Surely there was a moment. Don't call me Shirley. <laughs> <laughs> I can't get a big bastard. Presumably, there was a moment that happened where you got the call, Pat, you're going to be doing this, which you considered formally your first break onto the big stage. What was it? Replacing Musburger, I guess. And then, um, you know, I did the Ali fight. That was pretty big. Muhammad Ali lost. I think replacing Brent in the studio was something I thought I would never do or never be asked to do. And the reason I replaced him was I was on the air doing a Laker game. I was doing all the sideline uh, stuff. Now there's not a, a guy doing any sidelines, right? It's all women. You notice in the past year that every single show, sports-related, has inserted a woman into the show. And they're good. Look, they wouldn't end up there if they weren't any good. But why do you think that's happening so much more now? Oh, women are allowed to work in sports. They were allowed to work in sports 10 years ago, five years ago, too. Why is there so much? People more? weren't ready. It's not that we need a woman. There are women. I mean, we don't. they don't go out and say, we need a, we need a girl on this broadcast. Years ago, it wouldn't happen. Now it's happening. I would gesture to say that some networks are saying that. We need a woman on this broadcast. ESPN is using a woman. We need to compete with them. If they're doing it, we should do no. it. You if don't you think that conversation ever happened? Not that one. But if you have five guys doing a broadcast, it'd be nice to have a woman. who. Know, and by the way, all those women are much more smarter than I was when I was doing sidelines. They come with so much more game. I When the season begins, I text all those people. The guys are the eight guys it took to replace me and other people. And I, and I write to them, 
I taught you everything you know, but not everything I know. (laughs) (laughs) Your greatest holy shit moment that you were witness to in the broadcast booth in each one of these sports, the World Series. Uh, Kirby Puckett coming off to bat for somebody. Uh, I I was doing the the game with uh, Tommy Lasorda and we had our coats off. It was indoors in Minneapolis and Kirby came up to the plate and uh, Charlie LeBrant came up to the pitcher's mound and and Tommy said to me, Pat, put your coat back on. I said, why? He said, the game will be over in about 10 minutes, 10 seconds. I said, what you tell you? He said, just put it on. First pitch, boom, out, went out. So that was like a holy smokes uh, moment. Final four. Well, I always loved the uh, elevation of Duke. Uh, I love Duke. It's my team. If, I, if I'm a fan, I would root for Duke. Uh, I thought their teams were always great, disciplined. Mike and I are friends, Krzyzewski. And um, the rise of Duke was a big deal. In fact, when they first came out, I said, God, I hope these guys never succeed because how are you going to pronounce that coach's last name? In fact, someone asked me that. They said, how do you – you're good friends with uh, Krzyzewski, right? And I said, yeah. Real good friends? I said, yeah, we're good buddies. He said, spell his last name. And I said – K. It's Coach K. <laughs> uh, but I always enjoyed that in Michigan. You know, th- those years in college basketball, when players came back to the same team they left for the holidays, those were those were fun. NBA Finals. Oh, gosh. Um, oh, man. I- I'll tell you. Um, when, uh, when Houston beat the Lakers on a shot towards the end of the game, I was – standing right there and Cooper falls on his back and uh, that was a stunner. Uh, But the best thing I ever saw was um, uh, in Boston and it was Larry Bird and it was somebody else and they were going uh, toe-to-toe on points. Larry scored two, he'd scored three. Larry scored three, he scored two. And I could hear them talking to each other, and they were they were saying, "Let's just keep doing this. Like, let's let's this, this is cool." Um, that was amazing. And then Magic's baby hook when they beat the Celtics that was probably pretty big. The Super Bowl, the greatest Super Bowl I ever saw was um, at the end of the game. The 49ers needed a touchdown, and they were back to their four. And as Joe tells it. His whole team was like, they, they went into that huddle. These are professional athletes. They're like, what do we do, Joe? Joe, tell us what to do. And they were, they were, you know, panicked. And Joe sees John Candy on the si- sidelines. <laughs> this is in the middle of complete team panic. And Montana sees John Candy over there. He's, he says, I got to get these guys back into their heads. So if you look at a tape of this, you see all – all the players stand up and look at John Candy because Joe said, hey, you guys, John Candy's at our game. <laughs> uh, and they all went, what? And they all look up. And that took their brains back to football. So called the huddle back, got in. Two touchdowns later, they won. I love that story. Amazing. The Olympics. Sugar Ray Leonard in 76. 
Um, was he favored to win the gold? No. You know, it's kind of an unfair question. I'm not saying that it's a question you shouldn't have asked, but the Olympics, there are so many sports and every hour there's something that happens. It's great. Uh, I was there for Phelps. Um, uh, there's nothing that, the whole thing, I, I can't explain the Olympics. The whole thing is great. Being part of it, being the center of it, uh, anchoring it, bringing it to the American people, that's great. Well, you know what was great at the Olympics was um, Tanya Harding and uh, Nancy Kerrigan. That whole battle, right, was going on, Remember and that. I was there, and uh, I saw on my sheet, sorry, I had some notes, that Tanya and Nancy were skating together that night, and then they'd be on the court together. They both hated each other. This is after uh, Tanya uh, was accused of, of hiring somebody to to break uh, Nancy Kerrigan's her, her boyfriend. Um, so I went down to the to the arena. I walked in, and there was Tanya. She goes, "Hi, Pat." I said, "Hi." And she was crying. She said, "I need a cigarette." I said, "Here, go ahead." And she was so upset. And then we went out, and then to watch Tanya and Nancy. I think the sports fan sometimes gets things wrong. Like I think everybody thought that Tanya would be uh, on the ice the same time as Nancy Kerrigan, that it'd be battling back and forth. That's not true. Uh, but I was standing behind the judges and uh, Nancy Kerrigan uh, up to that point was winning the gold. And they had these little switches there. And then Oksana Bayul came out, who nobody knew either. Uh, I had met her when I was when she was 11. I wish I'd have been 11. Uh, when she was 11, I met her in Russia um, doing the story on uh, on somebody else. So she does her thing, unknown. And at the end, and Oksana has told me this, she added another flip because she knew she was losing to Nancy. So she added the flip, and at the end, she took her arm, ballet like up in the air, and pointed their fingers to the air, and I watched everybody switch Nancy, switch down to silver, <laughs> and Nancy to gold. And I was standing right there. One of the things about your life that is sort of public knowledge is sort of the intro to the Entertainment Tonight kind of program. I was working at the last two Olympics, I did the Olympics and ET, so I was doing double duty. Whether you want to admit it or not, you're a very inspirational guy. And what's been inspirational for many people who follow you, whether you want to admit it or not, is it's always inspirational to see somebody who is like a plane taking off and then there's a speed bump that happens and something goes astray, the plane crashes, but the person dusts themselves off, right. gets out of the wreckage, and comes back from adversity. When was the first moment that happened? Because I believe in your later life was when things started going differently for you in that realm. It seems very rare for somebody in their 50s to start having a problem. It's not at all, and I'm glad you brought it up because uh, I'm an alcoholic, recovering alcoholic. I'm coming up on nine years. I made a stupid voicemail to some strange woman I didn't know and uh, said every bad thing you could say to a woman, almost. And um, uh, she sold it to the National Enquirer for a couple hundred grand. And I was uh, 
publicly embarrassed. But I went to rehab, I took care of it, and I came out, I relapsed, went back to uh, rehab. I, I relapsed, went back to rehab, and never lost my job, never lost much but my uh, d dignity. Uh, my son stuck with me, my wife stuck with me. Um, and I prevailed, and I, I uh, met a lot of people in rehab that helped me, and now it's all I do pretty much is help other people. Can you point back to a week, a day before yeah. something happened the, that was a pattern that started that wasn't there before, and what your opinion is of why a week earlier nothing was going on and then a week later, you might not have realized, but now you realize looking back, wow, that's where it all started. That's where. Right. In fact, that's the way my, that's the way my book opens. Read it. All right. This is a passage from the book. I'll be back right after this. I'll be back right after this. The chapter is called Pat. There is this tape. On the morning of St. Patrick's Day, March 17, 2005, I woke up fully dressed my shiny Louis Vuitton shoes still on my feet, two empty bottles of 1972 Silver Oak Cabernet on my antique marble bedstand. I had no idea where I was or how I got there. At the bottom of the bed stood a cluster of people, all of them watching me grimly. I blinked at them in a daze. What was going on? Through the familiar fog of another red wine morning, I heard one of them speak as if from a mile away. Pat, there's this tape. I stared at him uncomprehendingly until his features came into focus. It was Ernie Dell. By the way, Ernie Dell, one of the greatest entertainment attorneys in the history of the world. It was Ernie Dell, my loyal attorney. Gathered around him stood the president of CBS Paramount, the executive producer of my show, The Insider, and several other suits I had no desire to see in my bedroom early in the morning. Between them, they had enough personal problems to commit most of them to rehab, <laughs> to an asylum, or to a long-term marriage counseling. But in this case, I was going somewhere. Indeed, I was waking up to an intervention. Me. Pat O'Brien. Yeah, that's the way it was. And that's something that never, uh, I started that day or that week uh, in New York in the village having breakfast. Bono was there, a bunch of people. And uh, I started drinking. I was a heavy drinker at that time. I never drank at work, by the way. Um, and from that moment at the Felix's in uh, the village, uh, it's the last I remember. And then three days later, I'm home. So I was operating in a complete blackout for three days. I had no idea what I had done. I got home, I probably collapsed on my bed, and then I woke up and there they all were. But I mean, there's no, if you're an alcoholic, you can't put a calendar on it, you know. Uh, I drank until I clicked. Uh, but I never drank at work. Uh, I couldn't wait to get home to drink. And there's a lot of alcoholics who are like this. Uh, thank God I didn't kill anybody, but I had a car and driver, so. Um, I didn't have a chance to run over anybody. I still have all my friends. I have all my limbs. 
And um, I'm very, very happy. I'm, this is the best thing that ever happened to me, by the way. At the time, I didn't think so. But I remember I was working on a television series, and we just hired the showrunner who shall remain nameless. And there was always something about them that, you know, had my spidey sense up, but I never... And you know how sometimes you're watching monitors and you're sitting in those director's chairs in back of people. And I was right. sitting in back of her and I noticed she was texting something and maybe this is rude of me, but I, I looked and she was texting her assistant and she said, bring me a coffee cup half filled with red wine, please, with the cover on. I thought to myself, my God, how many people are working and drinking? How many pilots who are flying are there's a lot when you're around somebody who has the gene but you don't see them drinking can you identify people right away with the disease or being involved Not in god it? let me tell you something Barry. the greatest thing about having no anonymity is uh that people come up to me all the time and say i need help what should i do or parents come up and say my kid and so I've been able to help people just because I'm Pat O'Brien and they recognize me and they've read all the stories. Um, so that's pretty refreshing for me to do that. You know, sometimes people, you hear salespeople say that somebody comes in to let's say a gym and they're trying to sell them, hey, will that be cash, check or charge? And they say, well, I don't have my wallet here. And after five objections, the salesperson will normally say, Okay, thank you for coming in. When you're helping somebody, is there any number of objections that you uh, say, you know what, I, I, I just can't help this person? Or do you just keep going and not taking no yeah, for an answer? That's a good question. Um, I never say no to anybody, really. Uh, but if they keep calling me while they're drunk, I, I'll say, call me back when you're sober. Uh, if they continue to use drugs and pills, I'll say, call me back when you're done with that. So those are my standards. Just be sort of whole when I talk to you, and we'll find you help. I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK. It's centered on the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll his story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. Go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary. I guarantee you it will blow you away. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names. You tell me a word, a sentence, a story, okay. anything. Donald Trump. I've known Don for uh, 25, 30 years. And uh, um, we used to be really good friends. And then he got this new job. And But I've known Don for a long, long time. And no, he doesn't drink. Howard Stern. You know what, Howard, that voicemail we talked about, Howard, you owe me money. He made a lot of money off that voicemail he played. I think he still plays it. But Howard and I are friends. I don't, I don't begrudge. Hell, I'd play it. It's just too good. But I've never heard it, though. But uh, Howard, Howard and I get along. We're fine. 
Jay-Z. Jay-Z and I go way back before he was famous. I mean, because uh, uh, I hung around with, uh, what was he called then, Puff Daddy. So I hung around with P. Diddy. That's why I met Jay-Z, and I still see him every now and then. Madonna. Um, I covered Madonna through her whole career, and has I have one of the iconic pictures of Madonna in my book. She's great. Uh, I like her because she knows how to change things up, and uh, she's a cool gal. She's a cool gal. Al Pacino. Al and I have a funny relationship. It's all good. But uh, he doesn't like to be interviewed. And so I chased him. Chased. I, I found out where he was performing. Uh, and he was on stage. And I got my way in. I got backstage. And he came off stage. And he said, Pat, what are you doing back here? And I said, I'd like to get a couple words with you. He goes, sure, let's go. And his publicist went crazy. I mean, she was like trying to pull him away. And she was trying to block the camera. <laughs> And that day, I was staying at the Four Seasons in New York. I got a handwritten note from Al uh, apologizing, saying, this is not the way I operate. Anytime you want to talk, we will. Heath Ledger. Wow, that's a tough one for me. Um, I got to know Heath right before he died. Uh, we were pretty good friends and Michelle. And uh, then he died. And it was shocking to me, but that uh, that was tough for me. Kevin Costner. Kevin and I used to run around a lot. We used to use the Warner Brothers plane to take us to basketball games and always sort of has that wry comment, you know. Like one time we were uh, flying somewhere and I had like five pieces of luggage. And he says to me, you got you to gotta learn how to dress like a celebrity. One pair of jeans, same coat, bring a couple extra shirts, put it in the bag, put it on the plane. <laughs> I'll never forget that. But I love Kev. Good man. Michael Jackson. Uh, Michael, I got to know towards the end. I tried to help him a little bit. He was a, uh, we knew he was going south. Um, uh, I've been in his house, uh, interviewed him a hundred times. In fact, I sat next to him. We were at a, a party one time at Spago, the original one. Wow. And it was Michael on my left. Pacino was at the table. Madonna was at the table. Um, it was a big table. Wow. And I turned to Madonna and I said, I said, all these people at this table, I'm telling people I had dinner with Madonna. So get ready for that. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Phil. I don't like him very much. Elizabeth Taylor. I uh, actually have a good story about her. Uh, I was with her and Michael Jackson once at an event. But one day I'm walking down at the Plaza Athene in New York City. I think it's on 64th Street. And out comes Elizabeth Taylor. And she goes, Pat O'Brien. I said, hello, Ms. Taylor. She said, would you mind walking me around the block? So I put my arm out and I walked Elizabeth Taylor around the block. <laughs> She's a great woman. Anna Nicole Smith. Uh, very sad. Uh, you know, I think what killed her was her fame. Or, or, I said to her once, you know, when this all was going on with her, Anna Nicole Smith was like a B-list actress. And, um, and I got to know her. And uh, then when she hit the bottom, she hit, he, she hit bottom 
she moved to the Bahamas when I went down there and she just kept getting worse and worse. You know, her son had died and she uh, drank and she was in a horrible mess. And I asked her this question. I said, Anna, I don't think you're going to make it. She said, I don't either. A week later, she was dead. But we were all part of that death. I mean, we overexposed her. Jody Foster. I love Jody. In fact, Jody was at that famous table. Um, uh, I can't remember who came up to who first, but uh, I've known her for a long time. I think she's an honorable, great woman. Oprah Winfrey. I bet you don't find one I don't know. Oprah has been a longtime friend and protector and supporter, and I've uh, been on her show a lot, and she's just... Uh, Everything you think you know about Oprah Winfrey is right. She's one of the nicest people ever. Mariah Carey. He hit all the right ones. Mariah, uh, we were at the uh, NBA Finals that opened the Palace at Auburn Hills in Detroit. And we had somebody for a national anthem, but they got sick or something. So I, I was with Bobby Columbi, who's a drummer of Blood, Sweat and Tears. And I said, we're stuck. We don't have a national anthem singer. He said, well, I have this new girl that I'm working with. Her name is Mariah Carey. She's never done anything on the national stage. Would they give her a shot? And I said, I can make it happen. I said, but Bobby, we're friends. She's good, right? She's not, he goes, you'll like her. And she came out and she hit it out of the ballpark. And uh, in fact, Mariah was one of the first people to tell me that I, I should stop drinking. We were, at a, we were at a dinner at the Waldorf in New York, and Mariah said, can I see you outside? She dragged me outside and grabbed my shoulders and said, enough, stop this. She was actually the first person. I see her all the time around town. O.J. Simpson. O.J. and I used to be really good friends. We played golf together. Uh, we, I remember I was in Atlanta when he killed Nicole and I got a call the next morning and they said, did you hear about OJ? I said, now what? And because there was nothing, you have to go back to that time. There was nothing any of his friends, including me, saw that was that violent. You know, we knew there was some domestic abuse and that's bad enough. And he said, he killed Nicole. And I said, what time? <laughs> you know, and it was based on nothing. Uh, but OJ uh, is getting out here pretty soon, so we'll see him around. I wish him luck. He, he can't stay away from trouble. Your proudest moment in your career? See, it's funny. I don't. I don't. That's how. That's how people fail real quickly. Is if they can, if they grab onto something that happened, and compare everything else to that. I guess getting to know Bill Clinton was was pretty good. But I mean. I look at everything that's good. Everything I do, I think is good. So I don't hang my hat. Oh, remember the time I did this? I don't do that. Has anybody ever shared a story with you and you walk away and you're like, Jesus Christ, I can't believe this person just told me this in the corner here at this party and I've got to keep that inside me. I never kept it inside me. <laughs> But the reason why I was liked by uh, Hollywood celebrities is that I, I was always straight with them. And if it was something bad in their life, I, I 
I knew how to get into it. So, your biggest disappointment in your career and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level? Never had one. You never had a disappointment? Nope. You're an original, Pat. Last question. What advice would you have for the young person growing up, poor as Abe Lincoln, in a town that is obscure, in an area that there's not a lot of people, and to have the kind of career that you've had? I say to the millennials and kids who want to get in the business now that they're very lucky because there's so much going on. Um, there's the internet, there's podcasts, there's shows that favor millennials. You know, I, I just did a show called Business Rockstars, and we brought on all very, very, very young people who came up with these apps uh, and made a billion dollars, and they're 24 years old. So there's something to do. And also, I, I see a big trend of kids not finishing college, saying, I don't really need this, go out and start my own business. And so there's this, there's this uh, inventiveness among young people now, which, which I'm seeing. You can't bullshit your way to a good job. People are too smart. It is talent that gets you the job. It's talent that gets you in the door. And it's talent that allows you to work on your terms. And when you want to leave, you leave. Pat O'Brien, this has been amazing. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Barry. I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message a review on the iTunes comment review section and one of these people will be a lucky winner and they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions or else if they're out of town, out of state or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on... Mr. Ryan Sir, December 13th, 2015. The title reads Breath of Fresh Air, five stars. And it reads Very Classy Podcast, Barry. You are a joy to listen to. So very professional. Keep it up. Thanks. Oh, thank you so much, Mr. Ryan Sir. Greatly appreciated and congratulations. Special thanks to our new sponsor, AquaTrue, with the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. Check it out. Go to industrystandardwater.com. Takes you directly to their website. Type in the code 100. Save yourself $100. I have one of these. It's amazing. Start turning your tap water into the best tasting water. Industrystandardwater.com. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money, drop that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going for Life is for the dreamer.
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.